Welcome to a new episode of Becoming a Post-Growth Planner, Obstacles and Challenges to Changing Roles and Practices. My name is Christian Lamker. I'm Assistant Professor for Sustainable Transformation and Regional Planning at the University of Groningen in the, in the Netherlands. And today I'm very proud that we move eastwards to Jakob Rock uh, towards Poland. Hello, thanks Christian for inviting me. Uh, my name is Jakub Rock. I work at the Warsaw University. I'm, uh, I have a PhD in ecological economics. Uh, I'm also a forest activist. And uh, yeah, I'm working a lot with social movements, uh, organizing. Uh, but I also do a lot of teaching, uh, and I think this will be also the topic of our today's discussion. Yes, indeed. We got to know each other only online digitally because you are an early front runner to teach about planning dimensions, spatial dimensions of degrowth and post-growth in Poland. First in Polish, I think that's why I didn't uh, recognize that for years, but now also in English. Uh, so I'm really interested in what first brought you to take these international debates up in your courses, lectures, and also which students are taking these courses. So we, uh, with a group of friends, we started an uh, informal discussion group about degrowth already, I think, 10 years ago. Uh, and it was uh, a bit more activist oriented, uh, but soon, uh, or not that soon, after a few years, uh, I realized that uh, I'm part of the academia and some other people are also part of the academia. And if we are thinking about pursuing the degrowth agenda, maybe we should use our positions as university teachers, uh, because then we have access to students, we have a stable learning environment. So we decided to, together with Veronika Parfianovic uh, from Cultural Studies uh, to start the first course on degrowth uh, that was and still is an open elective course uh, for anyone interested. And that was 2019, I think. So uh, next semester, there will be a, already a fifth edition uh, of this course. Um, yeah, and you ask who is coming, who is joining. Uh, I think uh, among young people, there's a lot of interest in, um, in alternatives. Uh, a lot of people are fed up with, uh, I think, mostly capitalism, even if they don't use the term. Uh, so they are searching for some inspiration, searching for some new paths. And I think that uh, academia, with being a bit old school type of institution, doesn't offer them that uh, many options to to think radically, to think you know in this open minded uh, manner. So the class that the class that we are having together uh, is such an opportunity. And recently, I also see that more and more people are coming knowing about degrowth already in advance. Uh, and I think like the, the turning point here uh, was uh, Jason Hickel's book. It was translated to Polish, I think one or two years ago. Uh, and it was uh, pretty popular. Uh, like so, so I think that degrowth uh, after some years, of course, it's still far from mainstream, uh, but it's being recognized more and more people are interested in uh, learning more also within the university. So it seems that perceptions have already changed a bit among students, also by supported literature that has been translated to their Polish language. But I can imagine post-growth remains difficult, hard to grasp for students, especially in spatial dimensions. Are there concepts, ideas that help you to teach that, to help grasping the ideas, what these new perspectives then mean for their own thinking, their own disciplines? 
apart from the the open elective course the, that I mentioned, I, I also do a lot of uh, teaching that is, uh, let's say, within the, the special planning uh, curricula. Uh, so my classes are mostly in um, local planning or how to include environment protection in thinking about development. So here uh, I was doing some, and I'm still doing some references to post-growth uh, topics, liter literature. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking that, for instance, uh, localized donut uh, by Kate Roworth, inspired by Kate Roworth, would be an easy entry point to, to these discussions. But uh, actually, it proved uh, pretty abstract. Uh, and uh, my students, uh, like, for them, it was hard to grasp. So maybe this is not a good answer to, to your question about how to make it more easily thinkable and uh, uh, how to um, to invite people to to this topic so what i find most uh, useful or most successful are the urban field trips so sometimes we we just go out with students and uh, you know being in warsaw it's a, it's a city where you have both uh, pre-war uh, some housing developments, post-war socialist housing developments, and recent uh, housing developments from the period of uh, predatory capitalism. Uh, and I think that just by looking how these various ideas and principles are manifested in space, how we can experience them just you know walking by, uh, but also talking to people who live there, uh, I think then the some differences are much more easier easy to spot and also you know my students are also inhabitants of the city so they are also affected by the processes uh, of of the of this urbanism that of the stage of urbanism that we are currently at and uh, yeah i think that via this uh, experience personal experience it's much easier to uh, to grasp the idea that okay there are like different set of principles that might guide us in planning and that maybe we can find some correlates in uh, for instance this socialist housing developments and some inspirations for solving our crisis that we are facing nowadays yeah i think we will get back to these parts especially towards the end of uh, of this talk today mm -hmm. but for this moment for now i would like to get a bit back in your own history also in your own research because you have done quite some work on environmental justice also beyond the urban core contexts, suburbanization, as far as I understand that, and urban expansion, urban sprawl have, have massively changed the landscape, but also led to challenges about uh, well-being, pollution, social justice, to how individual decisions are part of systemic results and systemic constraints. I think that uh, I would start with uh, the fact that urban sprawl uh, was hindered during the communist period. And it only started uh, in the last two decades, maybe two and a half, after the fall of communism, after a transformation to free market um, society. And um, it, the, this is now shaping uh, the, um, the urban space and the, the regional, uh, also uh, the hinterland. So yeah, we are observing a massive move outside of the city. And this is the individual endeavor to, to raise your quality of life, to raise your quality of, en of environment, to have bigger living space. But it's also a cultural model that is uh, partly inspired by Western European or US uh, patterns, but also partly rooted in, in Polish culture. 
but uh, what's important is that this process is uh, spontaneous, it's wild, it's unregulated, and therefore it leads uh, to very high car dependence because, uh, like in because of uh, lack of regulations, because of lack of proper public transportation, those people are then dependent on their cars which also goes hand in hand with uh, kind quite with this kind of culture of personal liberty and relying on your own car being your own kingdom or whatever so we have in warsaw which is a city of 1.8 million inhabitants we have uh, half a million cars entering the city the administrative boundaries of the city every day so this is this shows us the scale of commuting and these cars, of course, are creating congestion, and this congestion leads to air pollution that is uh, especially concentrated in the central part of the city. And given the socialist heritage, the central part of the city is still predominantly inhabited or disproportionately inhabited by uh, seniors, by older people who are living in the older housing estates uh, in the this part of the city. And the seniors are, first of all, they are not responsible for this type of pollution because usually they are using public transportations. And secondly, they are more vulner vulnerable to air pollution. Uh, so this is uh, like the kind of uh, multiple uh, geoparty that they are in. And this is an example of uh, environmental injustice that we are facing. And my work currently is... Uh, focused on uh, putting this term or this concept of environmental justice into Polish debate, because we have quite a lot of debate around air pollution about the fact that, okay, we have to limit the number of cars, we have to establish low emission zone, probably soon it will be established both in Warsaw and in Krakow. But uh, at this social inequality aspect is absent from this type of discussions. So my idea is to uh, like broaden a bit and to show that, okay, we have an environmental problem, but this environmental problem uh, has a very particular social implications, social inequality implications. And this is something that I would like to highlight. Do you recently experience that there is a bit more openness to think these way, these ways, or is it still a very small group trying to, to establish these kind of uh, bringing social environmental concerns together and maybe even overcoming the challenges towards what you could even call corner cornerstones to a post-growth society ultimately. I've, I experienced maybe not in this field of air pollution, but the, the other field that I'm also uh, engaged now, which is establishing new protected areas, uh, because with the recent change uh, of government, uh, there is uh, like expect a, a big expectation. Also, uh, this is the outcome of the massive mobilization of, of many grassroots movements, mm, that there will be new protected areas established. And there is quite often the uh, attitude of local communities uh, is negative. Yeah, So they don't want to have this type of protected area. They are fearing that it will limit their development possibilities etc cetera, etc cetera. and there are also some strong players who fear that their interests would be um, uh, would be in danger yeah so so i'm trying also to put forward the concept of uh, just transition for this type of uh, let's say naturally valuable areas because we are currently discussing of just transition only with regard to 
coal mining regions. And I think that uh, in this peripheral regions that still have the high degree of naturality of, uh, in the case of Poland, these are mostly natural forests, that we also need to think uh, using this frame of just transition. So here I see uh, there's a bit more interest because we are currently at the verge of uh, of starting a new process of uh, of establishing this uh, new protected areas and of course the the arguments you know coming from more environmental side that okay this is a valuable forest so we need to protect it these are still the ones that you would mostly heard about but there's quite a lot of people that uh, are aware that we need to think about this more socioeconomic implications that the social justice imperative needs to be taken into account and I and I see it as a part as a very vital part of of post growth planning uh, in Poland that you're just taking more uh, more angles yeah that you're not using only one angle that is either um, as usual uh, dictated by the profit making or profit seeking or as in this case by the social movement it's for for instance predominantly interested in uh, protecting nature not paying attention to local communities. Uh, would you say there's one or maybe two triggering points or entry points where these also international debates could really make a change or could really help putting the transition more in a quicker way or more substantially forward? Tough question. But yeah, I think, that, for instance, the the just transition as a term, it's already recognized. So, so for instance, in my thinking about how we should deal with these protected areas, I, I think that like using this term as a reference that already is somehow embedded in public, uh, you know, knowledge and public uh, awareness, is a way to to make it more understandable why we should care. Yeah, because uh, it's uh, it's already has been described uh, why we should care for coal mining regions. So this is uh, one idea that uh, comes to my mind. If you had a kind of a wish free for now, what what should happen tomorrow in your research domain towards environmental justice? But like one thing, but mostly technical, is better access to data. But but I'm not sure this is the, what you were asking about. But uh, it, you know, like I was, for instance, trying to to make a study, still trying to make a study about uh, like the the distribution of uh, air pollution within Warsaw. And uh, the only data that can be accessed, and it was really already a very difficult process, is the one kilometer grid. And uh, when I compare it to data that is available in uh, Western European cities, for instance, because these are mostly the, the studies that I use as a reference point, uh, they have much better spatial granularity. Yeah, And uh, so therefore, I, I feel that... Uh, yeah, th this is like a technical obstacle, but uh, if, you know, like looking maybe a bit broader, not only from my individual perspective as a struggling uh, a scientist, uh, I think that this, in order to, because I said that, like, I, I have my personal agenda to put environmental justice more um, into the Polish debate, uh, so... What I would expect, also being part of the activist movement, is to uh, gain this awareness that uh, social justice and uh, environment protection must go hand in hand. 
and that these are, I think that post-growth and degrowth literature is really good about showing that this more comprehensive picture, yeah, that we cannot really like have this tunnel vision that okay, I'm focused on environment protection and this is my main this is my main uh, goal. So so if I would like to see something changing tomorrow, it will be uh, like the bigger um, awareness of uh, how these two topics, the big topics, let's say, environment protection and social justice, are interrelated. Thank you. And uh, I did. I wouldn't undervalue from a post-growth planning perspective the small steps, like making a bit more data available, collecting a bit more data, is actually quite mm -hmm. simple. Let's say in existing structures, so you don't need a full revolution to make that. So that's mm -hmm. uh, good. Good to see that even if we want to think about tomorrow, there are things already to to implement to do that would largely benef benefit already beyond the wider considerations than for the mid, long term, and so forth. But we are here in Poland now, the first time in this podcast, at least, that we move to a post-socialist context um, and developments on the background of a large transition from um, political systems in the 1990s, especially, involving fundamental changes to the way how people live, how economy organizes itself, and you've explained also in terms of suburbanization and urban expansion today. But how does the history overall influence the perceptions of spatial planning also as a discipline today? Yeah, I, th I think it has uh, quite a significant impact because the, um, let's say the, uh, like the guiding principle, maybe this is not the proper term, but uh, let's stick with that of, of the transformation was that we are moving from constraint environment to liberty. No, and uh, therefore spatial planning uh, looked very much like uh, something from the previous era that this is regulations this is you know like a set of some rules that someone is setting uh, like for to limit our freedom of uh, where we want to live how we want to uh, live how we want to build our houses etc etc so there was and I think it still is like the dominant, uh, like the dominant idea is that uh, spatial planning is just limiting freedom. But I I think that already like after three decades of this type of thinking, people are uh, so much affected by the uh, by the lack of planning, the the fact that the cities are being run by developers, by private companies who are just seeking profit, uh, that there is a growing interest in going beyond this liberty-centered uh, notion. And uh, there is a growing need for, for special planning. Uh, so I think that there is also kind of a generational change. Yeah? Those who are affected by living in the city and being brought up in a city that, uh, you know, more and more public spaces are privatized, etc., are seeing uh, more um, that they are seeing the, the let's say they are seeing more value in in spatial planning so this would be like the the broad picture and of course we could go more into details uh, what exactly is changing but yeah maybe just one more thing that um, in the recent, in the last decade we have seen a lot of uh, uh, social mobilization around urban issues. So these were called like the urban movements. And some of these urban movements managed to get into local councils, but uh, they are still, let's say, pretty far from taking power. 
but they are already very uh, successful in uh, shaping the public debate about city. So uh, I think that the change is already taking place and uh, it started as a cultural change. So what we value and what we see as the, let's say, ideal city and uh, the political change, the legislation have to, you know, follow up in suit. And I think that, for instance, this low emission zone, you know, in a country, in a city where having your own car is a sign of your liberty and a sign of your uh, societal value, it is a very controversial issue. But already, you know, there there is such a strong push towards this uh, direction that I think that, yeah, in the coming months, the, the first low emission zone will be established. Do you see other directions that civil society, social movements put forward on the mid-long term. So where do they envision the country to move towards? What are the core topics within the political social debates around Warsaw and maybe also other Polish cities? As, as an outsider, it's quite interested to know what is the core debates around uh, urban questions, justice questions that are anchored in social movements and maybe mm -hmm. not yet fully taken up in politics. Yeah, I think uh, housing is uh, is a topic that was uh, in the last uh, election campaign. It was really uh, widely discussed. Uh, and uh, up till now, there is still like a dominant perception is that uh, the the right way to, to do housing policy is to uh, build private ownership. And uh, in order to gain private ownership, you need to get a credit, bank credit. So what the state can do about it, they can like help the banks to give more credits. So this is still like a very neoliberal thinking, despite the fact that the last our last government was at least uh, verbally very far from liberalism. Uh, but still, their program was to like the to to make the the credit uh, bank credit more accessible. So there is uh, not. I I think that there is uh, like the change that is coming is uh, will be mostly about the model of housing. So it doesn't have to be private ownership as the only um, let's say. Ex, uh, expected uh, outcome and it doesn't have to go it doesn't have to be created via bank credits it can be also done by um, by just uh, state uh, built communal housing uh, or maybe some private public partnership maybe also some revival of uh, cooperatives although cooperativism is uh, it's still very prevalent in Poland, so uh, I'm not sure about the data, but because it's changing from year to year. But uh, let's say roughly 20% of uh, of tenants are uh, are part members of uh, housing cooperatives, but these are the housing cooperatives that were created in a very top-down manner, so they don't really fit with uh, cooperative principles of uh, of democracy, uh, etc. So I think that there maybe is also um, some revival in this area needed and yeah i think that also in, in terms of housing there was a very big debate that uh, a lot of uh, after the communism uh, like majority or yeah i think majority at least in warsaw it was a very big share of uh, of housing was uh, communal flats so uh, a lot of tenants suffered from reprivatization which was it was very wild uncontrolled process that also included many um, 
like illegal activities you know where people were using some fake documents uh, to prove that it was uh, their property or their ancestors property before the war uh, so it's uh, estimated that uh, 100,000 tenants in Warsaw was affected by the reprivatization and for quite a long time it was a topic that was below the radar because it didn't affect middle class because middle class was able, okay, the communal housing was privatized, so either we are able to pay the higher rent, but usually we are able just to, to buy the flat and to turn it from communal housing to privately owned but those from the lower classes were not able to to buy this uh, flats and they stayed uh, stayed like uh, dependent on the owner of the whole building and if the owner changed for the private company or private individuals uh, who were interested in profit seeking mm -hmm. they were uh, the ones who who suffered the price so, so I think this reprivatization process also left like a big uh, scars, let's say, in the in the thinking about how we should shape our cities. And it also proved that you know it's much easier to to build your uh, mm -hmm. mobilization and to be heard and recognized if you are coming from the middle class uh, background than if you were from the lower class. Yeah. Do you also recognize growing interests or specific interests of students in, in housing questions? As they are often the ones just entering or making their first own experiences on uh, on the housing market, including the problems to get out by decent housing, including the questions mm -hmm. of which type of housing and so forth. Yeah, definitely, yes. And uh, this is something that is, especially this year with the cost of living crisis that is present all around Europe, uh, there were even some uh, some protests from students uh, that uh, yeah they they were just pointing to the fact that how we can study if we have to work full time to to afford a flat or even a room in Warsaw, and only I think less than twenty percent of them uh, can uh, rely on um, on student housing that is provided by the university. So definitely yes, and uh, like maybe just uh, a short. Uh, loop to your first question about uh, like how to provide these entry points uh, now i um, also remember that uh, there we had a really lively discussion about the uh, book by francois schneider and uh, anitra nelson about degrowth and housing and uh, yeah i think th this was a good uh, starting point uh, and uh, i've seen that this was uh, you know uh, like coupled with their personal experience, uh, it was uh, something that was, um, it was a good way to to introduce them to degrowth or post-growth principles. Yeah, so a large concept, but still in relation to what we all experience, um, basically in our almost daily or regular decisions. To move towards the end now, as we are talking for half an hour or so, We've been using the term post-growth planning since 2016-17 already. And during each of the episodes, we ask for an additional contribution to a definition of post-growth planning. So for this final sentence, I would like you to finish the sentence for us. Post-growth planning is... Yeah, I was thinking and I'm, I came up with this. Post-growth planning is about creating conditions for good life and coexistence for both people and other beings, not subordinated to the principle of capital accumulation in the hands of a few. 
It is based on identifying and valuing interdependencies, seeking to man maintain or reconstruct these relations. So this would be my definition. Thanks very much for sharing that with us. And uh, we are all looking forward for more of your experiences in teaching and research over the coming years. And uh, many thanks for joining me today in this podcast episode and many best regards to Warsaw. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. Hey.